Okay, if you would please turn to the Acts of the Apostles, chapter 11. I will be reading Acts 11, verses 1 through 18. Now the apostles and the brothers who were throughout Judea heard that the Gentiles also had received the word of God. So when Peter went up to Jerusalem, the circumcision party criticized him, saying, You went to uncircumcised men and ate with them. But Peter began and explained it to them in order. I was in the city of Joppa praying, and in a trance I saw a vision, something like a great sheet descending, being let down from heaven by its four corners, and it came down to me. Looking at it closely, I observed animals and beasts of prey, and reptiles, and birds of the air. And I heard a voice saying to me, Rise, Peter, kill and eat. But I said, By no means, Lord, for nothing common or unclean has ever entered my mouth. But the voice answered a second time from heaven, What God has made clean Do not call common. This happened three times, and all was drawn up again into heaven. And behold, at that very moment, three men arrived at the house in which we were, sent to me from Caesarea. And the Spirit told me to go with them, making no distinction. These six brothers also accompanied me, and we entered the man's house. And he told us how he had seen the angel stand in his house and say, Send to Joppa and bring Simon, who is called Peter. He will declare to you a message by which you will be saved, you and all your household. As I began to speak, the Holy Spirit fell on them just as on us at the beginning. And I remembered the word of the Lord, how he said, John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. If then God gave the same gift to them as he gave to us when we believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I that I could stand in God's way? When they heard these things, they fell silent and they glorified God, saying, Then to the Gentiles also God has granted repentance that leads to life. Blessed is the reading of God's holy, infallible, inerrant, historical, and very important word to our souls. Let's pray. Father, you have been good to us this morning by the presence of your Holy Spirit causing such sinners as us to truly worship, love the truth of your Son through singing the Word. I ask now that worship continue. That, that we would know that what we have just read and other texts we will see there in the Scripture in order that we understand them to your glory, to our sanctification. So do this, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen. One major part of living the Christian life is having the Lord constantly change our views. Our errant theologies, our cultural givens, even our Christian cultures. We've always done it this way. Part 
of God's fatherly love in our lives is whacking us upside the head with a two-by-four of truth, of Bible, and of change. And sometimes these changes in our thinking, they are small. And we who are believers, we go and have gone through many of those in our Christian lives. But sometimes changes that God's calling for are huge. Like our passage this morning. And therefore they are really hard to go through. To go through a radical theological paradigm shift can be painful and scary, both emotionally and culturally. And no one goes through those easily and quickly. Imagine yourself to be a white person raised in South Carolina in the early 1800s. And you're born of a father who is a plantation owner with 45 slaves working the field. And at age 22, you come to Jesus, your Savior. But you didn't come to Him in a vacuum. You have a culture. You have a culture that is wrapped in racist ideology. But it feels so natural to you. Because it's the only world you've known. But now you're a believer. A paradigm shift in that ideology and in that culture is required. But it won't come overnight. And it won't be easy. But the Lord will continue to use two-by-fours. Or imagine yourself having walked with the Lord now for 10 years. You're filled with the Spirit. You love Him. Much fruit has been born in your life. And then all of a sudden you come to a season where you realize you cannot avoid clear biblical passages anymore on God's sovereign election. It goes against everything you've assumed. And it goes against what most of your Christian teachers and leaders have told you. But now you're stuck. That theological paradigm shift won't be easy and it won't be quick. Or imagine yourself a first century Jew who comes to Jesus. You've been walking with Jesus, filled with the Spirit for six or seven years. And then all of a sudden, news starts to trickle into your city of Jerusalem that one of your big shot leaders went into a Gentile's home in order to eat their food and be with them. And you're hearing this is what we Jewish Christians are supposed to move toward. This paradigm shift won't be easy. And it won't be quick. Over the last two weeks in the book of Acts, we have seen the Lord take a two-by-four upside of Peter's head in order to get him to go into this Gentile's home with a bunch of Gentiles there and preach the gospel. Got to get this. Culturally, religiously to Peter, it felt like the Lord Jesus was saying, Peter, go sin. Go defile yourself ceremonially. And, and while you're at it there in Caesarea, in the house, why don't you go pay for a prostitute? That's what it felt like to him. Peter had been preaching the gospel of Jesus for at least seven years. Jesus told him and the other apostles, you will go into all the world 
to preach the gospel. But in their centuries-old Jewish way of thinking, clearly Peter and thousands of other Christian Jews at this time thought, well, that surely means we are going to all the world, to all of those cities throughout the Roman Empire eventually, to preach to the Jews that live there. But the thought of preaching to pagan Gentiles that they can be saved through Jesus Christ, particularly without them ever becoming culturally and religiously Jewish, that was absolutely unthinkable. This experience of Peter's was equivalent to having the Lord give a vision to a white Christian woman in 1830 United States of America telling her, go marry a black man. And so the Lord swung the two by four at Peter's head three times with that vision to convince him, I'm not playing games, Peter. I'm serious. And once Peter was persuaded, he showed some wisdom, saying, I'm not going alone. I need some witnesses. This is dangerous territory. And so he didn't grab one or three or four there in the city of Joppa. He took six Christian Jewish men with him in order to bear witness in case... Whatever's going to happen there in this Gentile home, and just in case it causes a big contentious uproar in the church back home in Jerusalem. And so news of what happened in Cornelius' house spread rather quickly, and we pick up in chapter 11, verse 1. Now the apostles and the brothers who were throughout Judea, heard that the Gentiles also had received the word of God. So when Peter went up to Jerusalem, the circumcision party criticized him, saying, you went to uncircumcised men and ate with them. Peter is being reprimanded by a bunch of fellow Christian Jews. Verse 3 is a criticism. It's a rebuke. You went to uncircumcised men and you ate with them. Read on. But Peter began and explained it to them in order. And then, if you pay close attention, it should stop you and think, what's he doing this? Because this is the way I'll put it. Then Luke wastes a whole bunch of ink by having Peter repeat the whole story in Luke's story that he's already clearly told us in chapter 10. Luke could have been true with the historical context and just said what he just said there. But Peter began and explained it to them in order. And we all would have known exactly what that meant. It meant what was clear in chapter 10. Peter explained about the angel coming to Cornelius and then the vision three times that he got, the men showing up at the gate, the Holy Spirit speaking to him, going to Caesarea, and as he's preaching, the Holy Spirit falls, they speak in tongues and they praise God. He could, we would have known exactly what he meant. So why does he waste the ink? Why is he so redundant? It's very purposeful. This is huge, Luke knows, in trying to get over of this transition within the early church. And so by the apostle Peter, through Luke's pen, reciting the whole scenario of the Cornelius event, 
what he's doing is driving home a lesson. The lesson of this extremely important and significant transition in redemptive history. And Luke wants us, the readers, to grasp how God changed the thinking Early Christians on a matter that was so essential for the spread of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Because if the Gentiles had been required to become culturally Jewish, to adopt the culture, the rituals, the ceremonies, the diet of the Jews in order to be saved by Jesus, then the gospel would not have spread to the Gentile world like it did. And not only that, it would have been a different gospel. A different gospel than the true gospel. That a person, Jew, or Gentile is saved by faith in Christ alone, totally apart from holding to any mosaic cultural Jewish laws like what you eat or whether you're circumcised or not. It was no small issue. And so in the book of Acts, again here what Luke is doing, he's showing this crucial transition. This is what he does throughout Acts with some major things. He starts with this crucial transition of the ascension of the Lord Jesus. And then the pouring out of the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost. And then Stephen being stoned to death, which initiates that first great persecution of the church led by Saul of Tarsus. Then into Saul of Tarsus' conversion on the Damascus Road. And now in chapters 10 and chapter 11, he shows how this major transition, how the gospel is going from the Jews to the Gentiles, took place. It shows how the Jewish church with their hand-picked personal apostles of Jesus Christ Himself, how they came to finally understand that salvation in Jesus was not just for the Jews, but it was for all peoples and all differing cultures. And that's the hinge upon which the rest of the book of Acts will turn. The mission to the Gentiles throughout the rest of the chapters. But know this. There were many. Many, especially of the Pharisee party, who were converted to Christ. Paul himself was of the Pharisee party. We have different theological uh, what do you, clans or whatever you want to put with, right, within church life. We understand what this same thing within early Judaism. And they're coming from the Sadducees, from the Pharisees, maybe some Essenes, maybe those that didn't identify with any of those, but just I'm just a Jew. But from that particular very fundamentalist Pharisee party, there were many even after this meeting, and clearly it's their voice that we hear in verse 3. They were not happy with what Peter did. And so, when they're having this meeting, even the other apostles, because remember, they're like Peter. They're, Peter was shocked. I ain't going to do that. And many of the office holding elders in the church, they're all troubled over this. What's going on? And so in that meeting, there clearly are a number of Jewish Christians who are very angry. You went into a Gentile's home and you ate food with them. They were very human, just as we are. 
Instead of rejoicing that God, through Jesus Christ's death on the cross and His resurrection, was saving non-Jewish sinners, instead of rejoicing in it, they were livid that Peter went into their home and ate their food. It sounds a lot like the stories I would hear in the late 60s during the hippie movement and then the Jesus movement with that came along where there were many Christians in their local churches that says, we don't want them coming here into our nice church buildings with new carpet. They're dirty and unbathed and smelly and bearded and long-haired and barefooted. Let me go somewhere else. Great, Jesus is saving them. So here, notice in the text, Luke identifies this particular group of critics as the circumcision party. And he identifies the Gentiles through their lips as the uncircumcision party the uncircumcised men. Circumcision was a cutting-edge issue for the Jews. It was the way they understood in the first century the whole context of being God's covenant people. It goes all the way back to the very first book of the Bible, Genesis 17. We read this beginning at verse 1. When Abraham was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abraham and said to him, I am God Almighty. Walk before me and be blameless that I may make my covenant between me And you, Abraham, and may multiply you, your grandchildren and great-grandchildren on down. I may multiply you greatly. Then Abraham fell on his face. And God said to him, Behold, my covenant is with you, and you shall be the father of a multitude of nations. And then in verse 10, God says, This is my covenant which you shall keep between me and you and your offspring after you down to the first century A.D. And your offspring after you. Here it is, Abraham. Every male, as opposed to female, among you shall be circumcised. You shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskins, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. He who is eight days old among you shall be circumcised. Every male, both he who is born in your house and he who is bought with money, shall be circumcised. So shall my covenant be in your flesh, an everlasting covenant. Any uncircumcised male who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin shall be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. And so God's covenant sign with Abraham and with Abraham's descendants, it was crystal clear, circumcision would be the sign. It would be the mark that a man was part of God's covenant community. And so, to these first century Jews, This was not merely a cultural or religious function. To them, 
It was a moral issue. But what they did not get, though it was there, and it will ultimately take Jesus to come and fulfill the law and rise from the dead and send his apostles and particularly to send one to whom he's sending to the Gentiles named Paul who will have all the theological goods to unpack what was there in the Old Testament. And how Paul will later say this is that this was a mystery, meaning it was hidden from past ages and generations, but now in the first century with the coming of Christ through me, through the apostles and the prophets, this mystery is being unveiled. And the mystery at its core is that non-Jews, Gentiles, God is saving many of them as he's saving many Jews, and together he's making one new Man. But it was there. In chapter 12, verse 3, when God first encounters Abraham, He says this in the promise. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you, Abraham, all the families, not just your family, all the families of the earth, shall be blessed. And in chapter 22, verse 18, God says to Abraham, in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed. We know now that means saved. And so, what we get from Jesus' apostle, Paul, is the teaching that it is very clear that the seed of Abraham, the offspring of Abraham, was not just all the physical descendants, but most specifically, one particular descendant. Abraham has Isaac. Isaac has Jacob. Jacob has 12 sons, and one of those sons is Judah. And through Judah, later you get Boaz. And through Boaz, you get Jesse. And through Jesse has a bunch of sons. You get one son named David. And a thousand years later, there's one born in Bethlehem. You shall call his name Jesus. He's the offspring through whom the promise will be granted. Let me just read Paul on this. In Galatians 3, the apostle says, The promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say, and to offsprings, plural, referring to many, but referring to one, and to your offspring, who is Christ. He goes on. You see, for if the inheritance comes by the law, by your circumcision, by your kosher eating, by your festival and Sabbath keeping, if, if the promise came through the law, then it no longer comes by the promise. But God gave it to Abraham by a promise. But now that faith, that is with the coming of Jesus, now that faith has come, we Jews are no longer under the guardian of circumcision and kosher eating. Why? Because in Christ Jesus, you Gentiles are all sons of God through faith. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus and if you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring and your heirs according to promise. Oh, God kept his promise to Abraham to bless his seed and all the families of the earth. This was always God's 
plan and purpose. So you go from the first book of the Bible to the very last book of the Bible when we read this in the book of Revelation, chapter 5, verses 9 to 10. They sang a new song, saying to Jesus, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain. And by your blood, you ransomed people for God from every tribe and from every language and from every people group and from every nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God. God always purposed to glorify himself through the salvation of his elect from the Jews and also from every other people group. But back to the theme, change is never easy. It took a two-by-four to knock it into these early Christians. So God performed numerous miracles just with that episode of Cornelius and the gospel coming to that whole household. And not only that, Peter knew the wisdom in making sure those six men were with him. And not only that, to make sure they come to Jerusalem when... the. How's that saying go? The stuff hits the fan. And it did. And so we read in verse 12 of Acts 11. Peter's talking about what God had done. And the Spirit told me to go with them, making no distinction. In other words, stop with the distinction now that you're a Jew and you're better or more worthy. No, you're not. Don't call any man unclean. Go with them. Go with these Gentiles who have come to the house. And then he says, these six brothers, they're standing right there. I don't know how many people are in this meeting. But they're right there and he can point to them and they can nod their head and they can say, yes, we saw everything that he's telling you. And these six brothers also accompanied me. And we entered the man's house. So he made sure. These guys are from Joppa. It's 35 miles away. Everyone's walking. That's, that's a long way. Peter says, you guys are coming. Don't worry about it. We'll finance you for that. You're going to be up here. You'll be fed. But you've got to be in Jerusalem. Peter goes on. Verse 15. As I began to speak. There he is in Cornelius' house. The Holy Spirit fell on them. Just as on us at the beginning. He just, I didn't do anything but preach. The Holy Spirit fell. I didn't make him fall. And then he says, oh, and I remembered the word that Jesus told us. Remember when he said, guys, John baptized with water. But you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. And that happened to us on the day of Pentecost, right guys? And then Peter closes his defense with verse 17. If then God, remember it's God, not me. If then God to them in Cornelius' house, the Gentiles, as he gave to us when we believed in the Lord Jesus Christ? Who was I that I could stand in God's way? And the response of the leaders and many of the brothers that were there is in verse 18. When they heard these things, they fell silent. And they glorified God, saying, Then to the Gentiles also God has granted repentance that leads to life. 
But note this. That was the end of that meeting. But huge cultural, theological paradigm shifts are never easy. And if the change that God is calling for is at its core an attack on human pride and arrogance, some people will never change and they will fight the truth till their dying day. And it is a bad sign when the scripture does not change our thinking. When it does not change our living as professing Christians. And this was the case with many of these early Christian Jews. Many of them were not satisfied at the conclusion of this meeting. Just jump forward five, six, seven, eight years. I haven't figured it out yet. Somewhere at least that amount of time goes by to Acts 15. Starting with verse 1, we read this. But when some men came down from Judea, that's where Jerusalem is, the Jewish church in Judea. When some men came from there, from Jerusalem in Judea, where? Up 300 miles up to the city of Antioch in Syria, where Paul is now, Barnabas is. And it's predominantly, though there are Jewish Christians there, but predominantly a Gentile church. But these men said, we got to get there. And they go up there, and they, he says, and they started teaching the brothers, the Christian Gentiles. Quote, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. And after Paul and Barnabas, both Christian Jews, were Jewish Christians, after Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate. That's a nice way to put it. But he just said, after Paul and Barnabas had a massive dissension and division and a public theological debate with them, after that, Paul and Barnabas and some of the others who were appointed by the church to go up to Jerusalem to the apostles there and the elders there about this question. And so they go to Jerusalem and we read this in Acts 15 verse 5 as they're there in Jerusalem. But some believers, okay, these are professing Christians, some believers who belong to the party of the Pharisees, they rose up and they said, it is necessary to circumcise them and to order them to keep the law of Moses. No more bacon sandwiches for them. And after there had been much debate going on about that, then there's the day, read this, Peter stood up and he said to them, Brothers, you know that in the early days, now Peter's referring to our passage. He's referring to what happened with the vision in Cornelius' house. And it was a few years ago. He calls it in the early days. You know <clears throat> that in the early days, God chose me. Okay, this is how he says it. In the early days, God made a choice among you that by my mouth, the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. Now, so, feel it. We know more that happened here. See, when Paul 
and Barnabas are having that debate up in Antioch, 300 miles away. Now they're knowing they're being sent to Jerusalem and they're going to they're gonna deal with this issue. Paul and Barnabas both said, Titus, you need to come. Titus is a Gentile, an uncircumcised Gentile who has loved the Jesus, I mean, who loved Jesus for years now. He's not only that, he's a leader, he's a preacher, he's a teacher. You're coming to Jerusalem. And they brought him on purpose to Jerusalem in order to try to get away just with the leading apostles themselves and to say to them, Peter, the Apostle Peter, John, the Apostle John, the son of Zebedee, James, you grew up in the same house with Jesus, you're his brother. Here's Titus. He loves Jesus. He believes in Jesus. He's justified by faith. You know this, guys. So right now, speak up. Does he need to go to the temple right now and be ceremonially circumcised or not? You can remain silent on this issue. No longer. That's what they did. Here's Paul's own words. Galatians 2. Then after 14 years... I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas, taking Titus along with me. But even Titus, who was with me, was not forced. Oh, they tried. Oh, did those professing Christians in the church try. The, he was not forced to be circumcised, even though he was a Greek. Yet it was because of false brothers secretly brought in, who slipped in to spy out our freedom that we have in Christ Jesus so that they might bring us into slavery. To them, we did not yield in submission even for a nanosecond, a moment. Why? So that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you, Gentiles, Christians. Some will never change. But many, many Christian Jews, though it was not easy, they did go through a massive theological paradigm shift. Slowly and painfully, they went through a cultural revolution. Just as the child of the slave-owning plantation owner who came to Jesus in her early 20s needs to go through a huge ideological and cultural paradigm shift. Many of us have gone through many small theological shifts. And maybe some of us have gone through one. Maybe the outmost two massive theological paradigm shifts. Like understanding the doctrine of God's sovereign election and His sovereign providence over all things. And if we've gone through it, it wasn't smooth. And with, it, was with, it wasn't with no trouble emotionally. So let me say these things in the next closing nine minutes. Our Heavenly Father, His, His loving Discipline has been mercifully causing pain, which turns into change. Change for the better and thus for deeper joy and trust in Him. Through this process in our lives, He has been making us better husbands, better 
wives, better church members, better evangelists, better and more purposeful intercessory prayer warriors. He's been making us better friends who, who listen more attentively to others and do it well. He brings us into situations in our lives that require nothing less than the deep work of the Holy Scripture penetrating our hearts and our souls and our very lives by the presence of the Holy Spirit. For example, He gives us opportunities to meditate upon Jesus saying from the torture chamber of the cross, Father, forgive them because they don't know what they're doing. And then God's holy word frees us and it empowers us when the Father draws close by the Holy Spirit saying to us, be kind to one another. Tender-hearted Forgiving one another, just as God in Christ forgave you. So I'm going to close by asking a series of questions. Well, really, one question with a series of applications. What shifts? Cultural, theological, etc. What shifts are you being called to go through in your life? Theological? Is the Bible confronting you on a particular issue? It says you need to change your thinking. What shifts are you being called to go through? Cultural? Starts from our family cultures into our Christian church cultures into the larger culture. Are, are there aspects of our lives that are more worldly with the culture that he's calling you to shift? What shifts is he calling you to go through? Is it to be more humble and more loving and more giving and more respectful in your marriage? Is it to forgive someone just as God through Jesus' blood forgave you and pardoned you from an eternal damnation? Is it to kill bitterness? So that Satan does not have a stronghold upon your soul. What shifts is he calling you to go through? Is it, is it to trust God right now in your life, even in the midst of his very strange and painful sovereign providence? Is it to get alone with God? Not merely, okay, i got to go through my prayer list. No, to get, is He calling you to get alone with Him on a regular basis? To enjoy His presence by the Word of God and the Holy Spirit to worship Him and to commune with Him that He would have His influence and effect upon your soul? What shifts is He calling you? Two. Is it to read your Bible more because you hardly read it at all? Is it to read your Bible with more attentiveness in order to actually understand the words that are on the pages? Not what someone else thinks, not another YouTube guy telling you what it thinks or a theological debate, but to be alone with the Scripture, God's holy word, prayerfully, so that you would have your heart penetrated your decisions 
changed. I can go all morning on that. But I'm not. That's it. I'm just going to close with this statement. Because this is true. There is nothing. There's absolutely nothing strange about turmoils going on in each and every one of our lives. Because when we are weak, when we come more in touch with our undoneness and our brokenness and our pain, it is causing the grace of God to make us strong, meaning more dependent upon Him and not the world and not circumstances. And that's why I began this sermon in the way that I'm going to close it. One of the major parts of living the Christian life is having the Lord constantly change our views, our errant theologies, our, our sinful feelings and emotions, our cultural givens that we just take for granted but may be sinful because He is changing us from one degree of glory. To another. And this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the wonderful mercy that we who belong to you, have experienced throughout our throughout our lives, throughout the last two and a half years of our Christianity or 40 years of our Christianity, you are good. And we're so aware that we see everything through a glass darkly. And thus we're all the more dependent to look to your word and to look to the presence of Jesus by the Holy Spirit. Oh, help us. For we one day will be like Pastor John Svensson. We're less than 24 hours ago. No longer does he see through a glass darkly. But face to face. And he is happy to be known. As we will be because like John, we will not rest in any righteousness of our own but only in the gift that you gave to him and that you gave to us, the very righteousness of Jesus Christ, our Lord and our Savior. Amen and amen.